Well, thank you, everybody, so much for joining. I'm sorry that we didn't have a show last week. Once again, happy new decade to you. And uh, it is just after 4 p.m. on the 17th of January, 2010. So um, I don't have any particularly lengthy intros to uh, to go for. I did uh, uh, take a short break and went to, to Mexico for a week. We got a great deal on a sort of last-minute um, uh, deal, and uh, it was just great. Uh, it was a lot of fun, although I tell you, I, man, traveling with uh, a baby is uh, is a pretty exhausting thing. And, she, and now, to, to Izzy's credit, she was fantastic on the plane. Uh, and we were, that was where our biggest concern was because on the way down, we had a layover. And so it was like an eight hour flight. And that was, uh, we thought that was going to be pretty intense because she doesn't even like it when we sit on the couch with her. She's very active, but she was great. And, uh, she unfortunately did not take to the creaky <laughs> gringo crib that they gave us down at the resort. Uh, not a big fan of that. So, um, that, uh, that didn't work out so well. And she was very excited and got up very early in the morning. And so we kind of took some turns on that, uh, getting some sleep and so on. But yeah, it's amazing just how uh, different it is to vacation with a baby. Because of course, uh, you know, beforehand we'd be going for walks, we'd be going to shows, we'd be going scuba diving and all that. But you know, none of that occurs with a baby. <laughs> you just sort of uh, roll around and eat, and then have to go and nap, and then you go to the beach. And uh, half the day it seems to be sunscreening and trying to get her to wear her hat and so on. I mean, it was fun. But it's not something that you would <laughs> that you would go to do to relax. But uh, it was certainly uh, worth it all just to see her excitement when birds would land on the table when we were eating. She just went mental with excitement and uh, got to name the birds fairly quickly. And uh, uh, her language is just fantastic. She's going through this phase. She's literally learning a couple of words a day. Or rather, we're teaching her a couple of words a day. And she's really good at them. Uh, it's, and it's amazing that uh, when... When she says a word before, she would just sort of be practicing words and you wouldn't assume it related to anything in your environment. I mean, it could, but it might not. But that's not the case now. Like, so I, I took her to, to get some groceries and then uh, to, I got a haircut. And she, when we walked into the, um, the barbers, she said, airplane. Because, of course, we taught her airplane when we were on the vacation. And I couldn't figure out why she was saying airplane because we were inside. I turned around and thought maybe she saw one through, through the glass because we're not that far from an airport. And I couldn't figure it out. And normally I would just sort of say, well, she's just practicing the word. But then I saw that right at the back of the barber was um, a little postcard with a tiny picture of an airplane on it. And that's what she was pointing at. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. She's got this laser vision. <laughs> you know, she's like, and what's on the other side of the wall, boo-boo? So yeah, it's just amazing to see how, how rapidly... Uh, she is uh, just able to integrate and process this uh, this language. She's onto two syllable words. She hasn't assembled any words yet. Of course, she's not even thirteen months. But it's just it's an absolutely beautiful thing. It's like the supernova going on in this tiny and incredibly cute pink head. That's just a beautiful thing to see. So anyway, um, uh, so anyway, uh, thanks again to uh, to to everyone who's interested in and joining us today and and excited about philosophy. And uh, I I am all ears if you have a question then uh, just uh, give out a holler, and I would be more than happy to uh, to listen. Uh, yes, Steph? Hello. Yes, Steph? Hello. Steph? Yes, hello. Yeah, th this is uh, this is Jeff. Um, I was calling with a question. It's, it's related to, to job interviewing. Sure. And uh, my, my question is, is that um, over time, I have uh, switched jobs a number of times. 
And um, some of it, well, I mean, first off, let me give you some background, is that, that I do mechanical design for a living. Right. And um, over eight years, I've switched jobs like like three, four, I don't know, maybe five times. I, I don't know. I'm not, not thinking straight right now. I don't have my resume in front of me. But um, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that when I interview, um, I'm like not um telling them actually that uh, whether or not I was terminated from a position and uh, and mostly like like when I've been terminated it's been because I've been well uh, in a sense kind of a personnel problem and uh, not not so much one where I cost the company money or anything and so I, I guess my question is, is like maybe how I would um, bring that up or mention that in an interview because, I mean, really, I'd like I'd like to be able to just tell them. But hello. Yeah, go ahead. I'd, I would like to be able to tell them, but but I also don't want it to uh, end up in, into like a couch session either. At, at the same time, I, I want want to be able to tell them that. Um, that, that yeah I have I have shifted well, jobs. Right, right, right. But um, but but you know but uh, well, you know also be to... be truthful and and upfront and, and honest about it, yeah. and then and then that way and then still go on conveying value. And I, I don't know if if like from a technical perspective, given your your background as having been a CEO and having hired and, and fired people yourself, if, if you have any advice on that. Sure, and just to correct you, I was never a CEO, just a, a CTO, Chief Technical Officer, but that's not particularly relevant. I just wanted to mention that. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. It, it, it's a great question, and it's a tough question. My general approach um, is don't, don't explain unless asked. Don't explain unless asked. That would be my... Uh, first thing, because if you preemptively attempt to explain your resume, there's no way that I know of to do that without sounding like you're coming across defensive, if that makes any sense. I think just give them your resume. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and if, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, here's my resume. And by the way, I changed jobs because of this. And here at this place, there was this problem. And here at that place, there was that problem. I think that you are showing a, a level of anxiety about your resume that is going to, uh, I don't think there's any way to avoid that coming across to the other person as being anxious and defensive. And so I would not, uh, you know, I think hand over the resume and, uh, and wait uh, for questions to ask. Now, if somebody asks and says, you know, you've changed jobs a lot uh, over the past eight years, uh, could you tell me a little bit about those circumstances? Um, I would, um, I would keep it minimal for sure. I mean, in general, during an interview, a, a short answer is best and wait for follow-up questions because it's very easy in an interview when, you know, we're all nervous in an interview and, and we all want to make a good impression. But during an interview, it's very easy to over-explain, to say something that in order to be comprehensible needs something else to be said. In order for that to be comprehensible, it needs something else to be said. And you end up going on for a long period of time and then you don't know how to stop. At least that's I've certainly seen that and I think I've done that in an interview or two as well. You just you don't know how to gracefully exit this maze that you've entered of explanations. So uh, I would try to keep the answers short um, 
And uh, my suggestion, and if this fits with your career goals, so much the better. But my suggestion would be uh, that uh, if somebody says, you know, you've changed jobs a lot, you know, what's up with that? I'd say, well, I really do want to settle into a place for the long term. But I've, uh, uh, you know, the places that I've looked at, um, I've... I've either had not a great fit in terms of personalities or I've not had a great fit in terms of the work and, and what I like to do. Uh, and I've certainly given it a shot in these positions and tried to negotiate for the right thing, but it hasn't worked out. And I thought it's best for me to continue to look for a place where, which is a really great fit uh, rather than to sort of slog away in something that is not a great fit, which I don't think is the best either for me or, you know, frankly, for my employer. Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense, and and not only that, but but with also knowing too, um, because I know that that going into interviews too, that there there is really no, um, I don't know, set standards per se, because you you cannot really know what's going through the mind of the other person on the other end, so you you can't really sit there and like you say, get into the two drawn out of, of explanations. Would, would that be, do you think that would be pretty correct thinking on that? Oh, absolutely. Um, less is more when it comes to, to interviews. Uh, I've always tried to uh, keep my responses minimal. Uh, and, and I, you know, you could say that up front. I've done that in an interview or two where I say, look, I mean, my general approach to interviews, and you can tell me if you'd like me to change this, I will keep my answers pretty brief, but I'm perfectly happy to entertain more questions if you have them. Uh, but, you know, just, just for the sake of sanity and time management, uh, I'm going to keep my answers brief, but feel free to, you know, ask more. Uh, and, and, of course, at the end of an explanation, uh, I think it's really important to check whether the answer, uh, whether the question has been answered. So if somebody says, you've, you know, changed jobs a lot over the last eight years, can you tell me a little bit more about that? You know, give a short answer and then say, does that answer your question? Uh, is there more that you would like to know? Is there anything else I could fill you in on? Uh, I think in, in interviews, it's really important to verify that your answer actually meets the person's requirements. Uh, I think, And I think that does two things. One, it, it shows that you actually care about communicating and whether it's been effective. And you don't assume that it's been effective, which is usually a good thing. And number two, it shows that you are proactively making sure that communication is effective. And if you ever have to deal with customers or even internally, that is a good thing. I always liked it when people did that in interviews, when they would ask me if their answer had actually answered my question and if there was anything else that I wanted to know, because it meant that they actually cared about the quality of our interaction. And I also felt that if that person were ever to be in front of a client, that they would verify the quality of the communication, which is really important. I see. I see. Um, well, I mean, really, you, you've answered my question. Uh, I, I thanks a lot, man. I, I appreciate it. Uh, no problem. The, the last thing that I will say, uh, and this is about more than interviews. Um, I mean, w we know that society as a whole has no basis for its values, right? It's just tradition and government and gods and so on. Society has no basis for its values, the only thing that society will really do is it will judge you according to how you judge yourself. It will judge you according uh. to how you judge yourself. So if you're uncomfortable and you feel that you've done something, quote, wrong by switching jobs a lot, 
People don't have any objective standard of value. So they'll just say, well, he feels bad about it, so there must be something wrong with it. Just, you see what I mean? You bring up a very good point there. That, that's like uh, why I've been reading like uh, this this one book, and uh, it's um, it's kind of a good motivational book too. But it it kind of um, I, I think it describes corporate culture in general. I've been reading uh, this book called The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs, and um, like like kind of hoping to draw some perspective from that, and, and especially since he's a a technical guy. That that's that's a good place for me to go, but but I I see what you mean though too, because because I have walked into um, I don't know different uh, hornet's nest interviewing situations <laughs> with that with that perspective and have just gotten annihilated. So I mean I I, I know exactly what you mean there. Yeah, the the best preparation, my friend, that you can do for an interview is to be at peace with any flaws that you perceive in your resume and to say. I'm, I'm okay with these. I'm happy with these. I'm comfortable with these. I haven't made any big mistakes. I haven't done any bad things. Um, I'm, I'm content with, with what it is that I'm doing. I mean, uh, I'll give you sort of a, a, brief, a brief example, uh, and, and hopefully it will make some sort of sense. Uh, I was watching TV the other night. Uh, no, it was on, I was on vacation, and I was watching TV because, you know, that's what you do when you go to sunny Mexico. <laughs> you watch some TV. Uh, and, and Bill Clinton was on. And he was talking about, you know, his foundation and all the work that they do and all the virtuous things that they're doing and all the good that they're doing. And I think it was David Letterman was just, you know, basically giving his shoes fellatio uh, in terms of, uh, you know, sucking up to to Mr. <laughs> Dewey-eyed Bubba Magic Joe. And to me, this is really quite astounding. I mean, Bill, Bill Clinton is a guy who ordered uh, airstrikes that killed civilians, right? Uh, Bill Clinton is a guy... Uh, who used uh, a a lowly personal assistant as uh, his own geisha, right? This is a guy who, when he was supposed to meet, I think, the King of Jordan, was uh, jamming a cigar up an intern's hoo-hoo. Uh, you know, this is a guy who's had unbelievably sleazy, scummy affairs uh, with uh, just about anything that has, you know, lipstick and nipples. And... But the real and who lied about this to a congressional hearing and was virtually impeached. I mean, this is a a particularly virulent kind of scumbag. And the reality is, though, that Clinton has no problem <laughs> with what he's done. Obviously, he's no problem with ordering airstrikes and 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 pillaging the female citizenry of the White House and and you know dragging up to the shores of his pants whatever uh, dragging a a fifty dollar bill through a trailer park could hook. And uh, he has no problem with it. And so since Clinton has no problem with what he did, and there's no such thing as objective values, nobody can have any problem with what Clinton did. And so he's just a guy who goes and gets all of these uh, great speaking fees and is considered to be a humanitarian and a great guy and a moral guy, because that's his opinion of himself. And without reference to objective values, you just have to go along with it. And I'm, of course, I'm not saying be like Clinton, right? I'm not saying this is not licensed to be a sociopath. But what I am saying is that people don't have any objective standards of values to judge you by. So whatever you're at peace with is going to be very acceptable to other people. And so the moment you go in and you start defending and explaining and so on, you're communicating that you think that something's wrong. And that's why I say people will then immediately say, well... There must be something wrong with what he did. But if you're at peace with it, other people almost inevitably will be at peace with it too. 
Gotcha. And, and, you know, and to me, the, the thing that really counts, um, well, at least for me on my resume, maybe I need to communicate it better, is what a person accomplishes in terms of uh, absolute returns. And, you know, to me, at, at the end of the day, that, that's the only thing that really counts is, is that, and that's it. You mean sort of the, uh, the value that you've provided to your employer? Yeah, yeah, like in in terms of, of products and and things that I've done before, and uh, that's I don't know that that that's where I I try to predicate my value when when I'm talking with someone on the phone. But uh, but yeah, like like my past interviews, um, I don't know my past three or four, I haven't gotten any job offers, and uh, and, and of course I know there's a lot of people out there looking. Uh, I'm I'm actually back to work right now, but. Um, but I've also been going about trying to troubleshoot and, and figure out where exactly I'm going wrong uh, to, you know, at the very least, not get a, a job offer from, right. from an right. interview. So. Right. And look, I mean, I know what a tough job market it is in the U.S. And I've certainly gone through my own trying to get jobs during a recession thing. And it is tough. It is tough. The jobs are out there. And. What's, I think, important to remember is that job hunting becomes a marathon and people drop off, right? So you will get the job. You'll just get the job if you hang in there and stay optimistic one second longer than the other 200 guys looking for the job, right? So it, you can get the job. You just you really have to go the distance in this kind of job market and just be comfortable. Don't take it personally if you don't get job offers or return calls because it is a tough market. You just have to be persistent and positive and be the guy that people think like, doesn't he know there's a recession on? It's like, I really don't because I'm just going to be that much more persistent and positive. And I think that's going to be like, did you just come in from no recession Mars or something on the shuttle that I'm not aware of? But that's, I think, where you need to be because people will get a lot of desperation. They will get a lot of you know, sweaty voiced, please hire me. I'm, you know, about to eat my cat. And they will be drawn to the person who retains his optimism and confidence and self-comfort uh, during that process. It, I think it is what gives you the best odds and gives you the chance to be persistent. I think it's important when looking for work not to let rejection escalate. In other words, you know, oh, I didn't get a callback. That's really bad. I didn't get two callbacks. That's even worse. I didn't get three callbacks. And so it, it escalates and it snowballs. And then your confidence you know, takes a, a cannonball straight to, straight to the nads, right? And that's not what you want to do. I think you want to just say, hey, it's a tough job market. Increases of rejection do not mean increases in self, uh, in lowering of my self-regard. It is, you know, it's a cliche, but it's true. Every rejection is one step closer to the job that you're going to get. You've eliminated a job that's not a good fit for you or a person who's not a good fit for you or an environment that's not a good fit for you. You're just getting that one step closer to, uh, to the job that you're going to get and to not let it escalate, to continue to be as positive and comfortable with yourself because as the recession continues, the people who... As the recession continues, the people who are able to maintain that are going to really, really stick out and they are going to snap up the jobs that are there. And the other thing you may want to think about if you're used to moving work, uh, that may be a negative for um, a long-term career, but it may be considered a positive if you wanted to dip into the world of consultancy uh, because then switching uh, jobs is actually a good thing. So if you wanted to, to try and do that, that would also be something that I would recommend become a job co or a, a consultant versus being a, a corporate direct hire? 
Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that will uh, being being a consultant is is a great on so many levels when you're looking for work. I mean, it gets your contacts up in the industries. You have reason to make phone calls, which aren't about do you have jobs. Uh, you can start up a website. You can get your name out there. Uh, and you may pick up some work uh, or you may not, but it keeps you in the groove of working because it's really tough to spend eight hours a day looking for work. But if you are consulting, then you are you're reminding yourself of your value. You're writing up all the stuff that you're good at and you're calling people for references and uh, you can then um, try and find ways to get work. Maybe you can pick up some work uh, and that will help tide you over until you get something more full time. Uh, maybe you can get a job that turns into a full-time job, certainly in a recession, uh, uh, the, one, of the, one of the first places that a lot of people will turn to to hire people is the consultants that they have because they have a working relationship, they know who they are and so on. And so that's just an option. Uh, if you're finding it tough to find work, um, then I think uh, I, I would certainly uh, turn towards the consultancy thing and try and milk existing contacts and get your name out in front of people as a consultant. And then that may help you in terms of getting a full-time gig if that's what you want. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, um, really, that, that's all I've got, man. And uh, likewise, uh, thanks a lot. And uh, I've, you know, I've followed your show for, for well, since your beginning. So Whoa, dude. I really enjoy it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And uh, do drop me a line uh, if there's anything else I can do, or uh, if you do get a job, I'd certainly love to hear about it. And, uh, you know, best of luck. I, I, you know, I hate the fact that it's so tough out there. I really do. But um, uh, I think that with philosophy as, uh, as your, you know, <laughs> as your parachute, I think it is a softer landing. And I think you can uh, hang in there to the point where you can get the job of your dreams, even in a tough market. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, man. And, and keep me posted if you can. All right. Thanks, Steph. Okay. All right. Well, people were asking, how, oh, how do you speak on this show? Um, you open your mouth and Hello. right about now would be a good time. Hello. Hello. Hey, Hello. Steph. It's uh, Stephen. We, oh, hi. Uh, How's it going? College. Hey, it's going great, actually. Thank you. How are you? I'm just fine. Thank you. Um, how would you feel about a dream interpretation? I would feel fine about it. Fantastic. Uh, enthusiastic uh, about it. Great, great. Okay. Um, so this was a very, very frightening dream. Um, I woke up just like shivering and shaking. My heart was racing and um, I was sweating profusely. And um, uh, you want me just to go ahead and read what I wrote? Uh, yes, please. All righty. Um, I was walking down an aisle at some store with my mom and my dad. Uh, my mom was wearing denim and had a long ponytail, which is very, very different from her uh, actual style. Um, I don't remember much of this scene, but I remember I knew my dad was there, but I can't remember actually seeing him. Um, I don't remember the context, but my parents had gotten a divorce, but they were still together for some reason. Um, I knew that my parents were leaving and that I wouldn't see them again. And I was desperately begging them to stay and at least to talk things out with me. I don't remember her replies, but it was it was going nowhere, which really, really devastated me. Um, somehow we ended up outside. Uh, it was night, and my mom was about to get on a motorcycle, which is very unlike her in real life, and drive away. Um, I assumed I would never see her again, and I was still begging her to talk to me. Eventually, she gets on the motorcycle and, and starts to drive, but I grab the motorcycle and bring it to a halt. Uh, 
I said, just let me come with you for one day and I'll leave tomorrow. To which she responded, uh, that makes sense. So I got on the back of the motorcycle and I don't know why this is so vivid in my memory, but I grabbed onto like a bar on the left hand side and it just stands out really vividly in my memory. And, um, and, and then my mom complained about how much harder it would be to, to drive with me on it. Um, we're driving down a dark road and, and um, in maybe a forest or a desert um, with some vegetation. Uh, and at one point we fall off the road. Neither one of us is hurt, but my mom tries to drive a little more and it doesn't work. And she decides to pull over and work on the motorcycle. This is where it gets kind of weird. Um, the area we're in reminds me of the vegetation from Donkey Kong Country. And we're on a thin vine fixing the bike. There was a very I'm sorry, large... Donkey Kong okay. Country? It's, it's, it's is that a game place that I... or are we talking about the video? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very... Uh, it's a game that I was just obsessed with as a kid that had these really cool jungle scenes and... And everything that is it like I, the original I, one where you're kind of going up the construction site and all that? No, it, it's it's like a knockoff. Well, it, it, it was like Donkey Kong's own game. It, it's just there's a lot of like big jungles and specific looking trees that that it, it really looked like that in the dream. All right. Well, if somebody knows the game and can post a, a screenshot in the chat room, I'd appreciate it. But please go on. Okay. Um, Weird. Um, the area we're in. Oh, da, 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 uh, vine, we're on the vine fixing a bike, um, and there was a very large, stupid-looking goose, which I think represented God, and another animal which I think was a pig, and I believe it represented statism. And there was a jack, um, like a car jack, which was not under the bike but under a, a large metallic ball. I remember thinking, why isn't the goose doing anything? It's supposed to be helping. When I saw it, um, when I saw it wouldn't, I walked over and cranked the jack myself. And I don't remember the transition, but we're riding, we're riding again. And that's when I woke up. Uh, my, like I said, my heart was racing. I was shivering. I felt really scared, not just in the in the dream, but actually, like when I woke up, and I was just sweating profusely. And even now, I still feel kind of nervous talking about it. <laughs> right, right. Now, but can you tell me what, uh, I just want to make sure that I understand, what is it that uh, was scary at the end? Um, I, I think I was just still, I, oh, I totally forgot to, to mention something. So um, I get the car jack was not under the bike. There was a large metallic ball. You asked the goose, why weren't you helping? And then I'm sorry, maybe I missed a little bit as I was checking out the, the ultimate video graphic of <laughs> Donkey Kong, which I think was originally Monkey Kong. They just switched the M and the D. But anyway. <laughs> but um, um, the uh, well, I didn't actually ask the goose. I just thought to myself, well, why isn't the goose doing anything? Isn't it supposed to be helping? Right. And, um, and I, I forgot at the end... Um, I was I was still just really worried that that we that I I wasn't um, going to be able to I I don't know I was still worried about the situation with my parents I don't remember specifically what was worrying me, and then I remember actually thinking well I I remember thinking because you said you don't actually defoo your your parents they defoo you and I remember thinking that and then somehow I thought like oh maybe this is a dream and then oh it is a dream and then I woke up and that's that I I've completely forgot about that 
But um, and when did the when did the dream happen? About a week and a half ago. And do you recall what may have happened the day before that may have uh, had some influence? I know I visited my parents, but I don't remember specific. Uh, I really don't remember what we we talked about or anything. It was like a really brief visit. I think I was getting a, a grocery card, uh, a grocery store gift card or something for food. And uh, are your parents happy together? Um. Yes. Yeah. I. I, I think so. Yes. All right. And uh, tell me a little bit about your uh, your upbringing. Um. Well, I was raised in a. It, it it was actually in a lot of ways extraordinarily empathetic. Um, they, I was spanked a few times, about six times, and then eventually they realized that it wasn't really doing anything, so they stopped spanking me. And I, I always thought that was pretty impressive. I mean, it, it would have been better without the spanking at all, definitely. But but as opposed to, um, oh, it's not working, so let's spank harder, you know. Right. And right. um. Um, they, I remember several occasions where I was, uh, like, um, like I stole a paperclip or something from a store and I felt really bad about it. And I told, told my mom and she was like, well, well, how, how do you feel about it? And I was like, well, I feel really bad. And she actually asked me like, what, what do you want to do about it? And, uh, I'm, and not in a, not in a sarcastic way, but like actually curious. And I said, oh, I want to go in and, and return it and say, I'm sorry. And she went with me and, and everything. And I had a lot of those uh, situations like that where they were, I, I think I really learned a lot of um, uh, uh, empathy and uh, being in touch with my emotions was always very important for my parents. Um, that's great. Boy, great. That's, uh, that's fantastic. Good for that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And so they're happy together. And so the idea in your dream that there's a divorce going on uh, is not empirical, right? It's not like. Well, they they had that pseudo divorce, um, but it only lasted for a night. I'm sorry, that's in real life. Yeah. Um, there there was uh, they there was a a big yell fest. I mean, uh, our our relationship started getting rocky when I became a teenager, and I started like getting angry because they're Christians and um, Republicans. I I started like questioning that, and we started having yell fests and everything. And, um, and, uh, a couple months ago, um, there was this, um, just, I, I wanted to move back in and there was just, they, they had, they wanted, my mom wanted me to go to Thanksgiving with them, like have the dinner with them. And, uh, I, I already had plans with friends and, um, they, uh, she just got extremely angry and, um, uh, just started yelling and uh, eventually it just got I, I kept saying I'm, I mean I'll, I'll be happy to split the day with you or whatever but it's right. just I already have plans well, yeah, we and, talked about um, this before right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. The, okay. the case for college podcast right 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 okay right and what Does do you think the dream uh, uh, yeah yeah and what do you um, what do you uh, what do you think the dream is about um well I, I've been having a lot of trouble with that but I I, th I know that it's it's got to be some sort of desperation because I know I feel just absolute desperation with them leaving with my my life. I and um, I, there was one line that that um, it, you know I I'm having a lot of trouble. I think there's some emotional blockage keep like like or, or some n uh, logical blockage keeping me from getting to the emotional reasons behind it. Um, 
and I, 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 all I know is that I, I, I felt like desperate with them leaving. So that must be saying that I, you know, I, I really don't feel comfortable saying, <laughs> I, I, I really don't, I don't feel sure. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. All right. Yeah. I mean, it's not, not a lot to go on. Uh, as oh, far really? as the dream goes, but because we don't really know what 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 the triggering incident was that may have occurred, uh-huh. and without that, it's tough to know what the dream is is responding to. But we'll we'll take a few swings, and sure. uh, we'll see uh, we'll see what happens. Okay, why is your mom in denim and a ponytail? That's the first question. You said that's very unlike her uh, her dress, right? Yeah, <clears throat> it reminded me of this neighbor I used to have. But I don't know if that's related at all. But it, I, 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 I guess that's kind of a, a tough look. Right. Yeah, and the motorcycle sort of goes with that too, right? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Uh, do you have any uh, family or personal associations with motorcycles? Um, one, like, half cousin who rides a motorcycle, but I, I only met him once and it really didn't have any... Um, major impact. Right, okay. I mean, that could be a metaphor for rebellion. What is your mom's relationship to risk? Um, she doesn't like it. She doesn't tend to take it very much. Um, she gets very, um, very uh, angry when it comes to risk. Like a big, big risk, I, I guess. Not um, like, not little things, but but um, as far as um, like if I want to make any big, large emotional, like start talking about um, r- religion or, or politics, I guess those things would be considered risky. I I, I don't know. I I'm I'm having trouble um, answering the question. Right. Okay. And the reason I'm asking that is that in the dream, the, the, the mom dream, the dream mom, I guess, is, is pretty down with risk, right? She's driving off, you're grabbing her, you know, you, you grab onto a bar on the left-hand side, she says it's harder to drive with you in it, and then you kind of crash, right? Yeah. And she seems fine. She's not like, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever, and so on, right? Yeah. So, but that's not very much like her in, in real life. Like, she would would be devastating and, and blaming and um, she was just kind of quiet that whole time. She just like fixing it to herself. Right. Right. I'm just uh, just thinking for a sec here. Just looking at my notes. All right. Well, l- let me ask you this. Um, sure. What's going to happen if you push anarchism and atheism with your parents? They're gonna they they're they're not gonna want to talk to me anymore, and and I don't know if I would want to talk to them anymore. Right. And uh, what are your thoughts and feelings about that? Well, I've I've kind of like the the last few weeks, and I don't know. Last night I started thinking about this more, and I don't think it's it's a very good thing to go on. But the the last couple of weeks I've kind of been looking at it as in, like if we can have a, an honest relationship, I don't mind not talking about religion and and um, politics, mm-hmm. and I I don't think that's really healthy because those are things I want to talk about. Okay, and, and let me let me make the case for you not talking about them with your parents, 
which okay. I'm, you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate position here. Sure, or maybe sure, this sure. is the correct position, right? Because I don't know much about your family, but it certainly doesn't sound like your parents are any kind of bad people uh, in terms mm-hmm. of how they raised you. I mean, obviously, you have differences and significant differences uh, politically and philosophically, and those are not to be ignored. But, uh, you know, they weren't like setting fire to you and, you know, strangling your kittens and so on, right? I mean, they were good parents for you. Uh, emotionally and and you know they they recognized that hitting was bad and they stopped and and so on right so there's a, there's some good things obviously to be said significant good things to be said about your parents so let me just play the devil's advocate position here uh, because I think that this is what the dream is about and uh, maybe it is maybe it isn't but that I think is is uh, uh, is where the the best uh, the best use of time goes sure so uh, let's just Pretend that we can carve off religiosity and politics. And let's say that we can create a relationship uh, with your parents uh, or a relationship can exist with your parents that uh, you just just don't talk about those things. Um, Is there other things that you enjoy talking to your parents about or enjoy interacting with your parents about? Oh, yes. They're they're very interested in psychology and neuroscience. Um, Like, uh, I mean, they don't have a lot of knowledge in it, but they're 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 very interested when I talk about it. And we've actually been trying to RTR um, and it's actually we've been making a good amount of progress. Fantastic. Okay. well, I mean, that's that's great. Uh, There are other things like hobbies or sports or. Uh, movies uh, or, or yeah, books we'll, we'll, or, we'll, we'll no. go. See, oh, sorry. We'll, we'll go see films and, and stuff like that. Um, I uh, I bought an Alice Miller book and my mom wanted to bo- actually sa- said she wanted to borrow it um, after I was done. And I, I hadn't even suggested it. And that was uh, really that that made me just really happy. I can imagine. Right. And so um, uh and so there's a, there's a lot of it sounds like there's a lot of quality stuff in your relationship with your parents outside of uh, atheism and anarchism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, uh, so obviously for you it would be better um, if they became atheists and anarchists, right? And I don't think that'll happen. Yeah. Okay. And uh, so so if it doesn't happen. Uh, let's say that uh, a relationship of perfect value compatibility is 100%. Uh, if you don't do the atheism and anarchism with your parents, what percentage are you at? 75. 75%. Okay. Um, there's a lot of shared history and a lot of mutual respect, obviously. Uh, and there's a lot of – I mean the, the shared history that is embedded in families is a very powerful thing. Uh, and that automatically ups – uh, I think the intimacy capacity of families beyond zero. When right? you meet someone new, it's kind of like zero, right? But you've had decades with your parents and you know each other very well. So you automatically are pretty high. And uh, 75% is is pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, the other thing is that if you want to um, to get somebody to give up on God... Taking the approach of self-knowledge is a very powerful approach, right? Because you can either you can take sort of one of two approaches, right? You can either uh, do the rigorous logical and empirical arguing, right? And that's certainly a valid approach. Or what you can do is you can encourage the pursuit of self-knowledge in the person, mm-hmm. right? Because when somebody pursues self-knowledge rigorously and uh, indefatigably, indefatigably, what will end up happening is that they will end up recognizing that God is a projection, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. So the root of them going inwards and learning more about themselves, and I, I don't mean to say that they haven't done this, I don't know, but, but going further down that path will liberate them because they will see that the big man in the sky is the little man in their heads, right? Mm-hmm. And so Definitely. if, if and, and that may also occur with the state, right? Because, because we, we lose the capacity to invest emotionally in external nonsense when we become more fully and deeply and richly who we actually are. I said this uh, in podcasts years ago, that to me, the pursuit of self-knowledge is about the withdrawal of emotional projections into the outside world. So it's hard to find an anarchist who really gives a shit about his sports team, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because, or a philosopher who gives a shit about a sports team because it's, not, it's a projection, right? It's, there's no we in the sports team and there's no we in the state. And uh, there is no God in the sky. And if your parents are not going to be particularly pursued, like this, so it, you, what you can either do is you can disabuse somebody of the notion of God. And what that does is it causes their emotional projections into the universe to collapse back into themselves. And then they can deal with their belief or their faith as a psychological issue that needs to be dealt with, right? Like anxiety or depression yeah. or whatever, right? And so you can either cut the cord to God, the cord goes whiplashing back into the person and they can deal with that snake of the inner, so to speak. You know, it's like you, you pull the cord on a lawnmower and it goes back in. That's sort of what happens when you cut the logical cord to God. But the other approach is to have it reel in more slowly, right? Which is just, you know, learn about yourself, learn about yourself, learn about yourself. And then at some point, you will get that God is not out there, but is uh, a fantasy that it's within you. And that is another way of doing it. And if your parents are very interested in the pursuit of self-knowledge and a reading, you know, Alice Miller or whoever else that is that is going to, to, to um, help them down that path or help accelerate that path, I think that it's entirely possible. In fact, it might be considered probable that if you lay off the intellectual arguments but simply pursue the self-knowledge and the honesty, that God will evaporate from their perception as something that is outside of themselves. Does that, does that make any sense at all? That makes so much sense. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's wonderful. That's really wonderful. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm just glad that I can even tr try to do the R RTR stuff with them and, and, and they, they seem very interested. Right. And well, as I mean, far as politics, fantastic. that's fantastic. And the same thing could be true of politics, in my opinion. But sorry. Yeah. Ahead. And they're they're already very like, oh, well, we know the, the state is just dumb and silly and all that. They they just um, I, I, I guess I, I, I'd like to be more curious about that and see where they actually are at just to just to know. Yeah, for sure. Just be curious about their beliefs and, you know, encourage them down the pursuit of self-knowledge. I mean, I could have stopped this show after like show 50, right? Because, I mean, or 100 maybe, because that's where the arguments about the state and religion had all been encapsulated. But the reason that I kept going is I just hate shutting up. And also because... Um, you and me both. Yeah, having the intellectual arguments will only take you so far. Um, and the intellectual arguments are hard to replicate in others, as we all know. But where people cannot reason... By logic, they reason by empiricism, right? 
mm-hmm. and empirical reasoning, which is I can catch a ball even though I don't know the physics of why it's flying. I don't know the equations of gravity and momentum and air resistance and so on, but I can still catch the ball. The reason that uh, I've kept going and continued to encourage the people towards the pursuit of self-knowledge is that that which you cannot reject rationally for whatever emotional block, you will end up being able to say goodbye to emotionally through the pursuit of self-knowledge. And I think if your family is involved in that process, if you continue to aim at self-knowledge, I believe that you will all end up in uh, a great place. I mean, not that you're not in a good place now, but you will end up in a place um, where uh, reason has kind of snuck up on you rather than, uh, you know, sort of fall on on you like a house of bricks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, thank you so much. That uh, that 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 was one of the hypotheses I had had for the dream. Like, um, I I mean, I just don't want them to to leave without. I mean, I I didn't want it to end like like it w- seemed like it was going to end. You know, out of just I I think rebellion more than anything. Um, and I I, I want to thank you so much for for. Um, for all, all that you've been helping me with and like i showed him that that the podcast about um about the i showed him the case for college podcast and that's really when we started really making progress in my opinion i i think that's fantastic i mean i i i'm i'm incredibly thrilled and uh you know do, do pass along my intense regard and congratulations to your parents and and to to a degree right i mean and and this is uh, gonna sound a little funny but I do believe that there is, um, there is. You can have some some respect for them for holding on to a position that they still believe to be valid. Like if they'd sort of caved and said, "Okay, we're anarchists and we're atheists," because they were frightened of you or because whatever, right? But they they really are holding on to their beliefs, uh, yeah. and uh, you know that's that means that if they change their beliefs to something more rational, then it'll really stick. But but there's some. I think we can have some admiration for that, um, and uh, uh, some respect for that. There is a kind of integrity to that. That if you if that's what you believe, then you stick with it, right? Um, but I, I agree. Think that, uh, uh, I really do think that um, uh, the dream at the very end, <clears throat> excuse me, says, uh, you know, the, the large dumb looking goose or god, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, is um, not helping. We say, uh, not going to be able to help my parents. Well, yeah, God isn't going to be able to help your parents because God is not out there, but in your parents' uh, unconscious. And so I would, you know, just have them keep unearthing and they'll come across the tomb of the greatest deities. And I believe that the religious belief falls away from that. But that's the approach that I would take. All right. Thank you so much. My dad is calling me now, so I better. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> better say hi go. to them for me and uh, do let me know how it goes. Definitely, definitely, definitely. I'll keep you posted. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Hey, Steph. How's it going? Uh, it's going just great. How are you doing? Very well. Um, I was. This is a question about one of the videos you put up uh, a month or two ago about the adverse childhood experiences. Yes. And um, in that video, it was interesting to me because you said that it's possible that um, those experiences will manifest themselves in uh, hypersensitivity. To external stimuli, or even uh, hypo um, sensitivity, and uh, I I kind of noticed that there might be a manifestation about of that that is pretty widespread that most people don't know about, and uh, <laughs> it's actually tickling because uh, I have a few friends who were tickled a lot as children, and I have a uh, it's like a, a muscle massager, muscle stimulator or whatever. And a lot of them can't even handle 
it being it touching them because um possibly because they're so hyper their brain is trained to engage the flight or fight response when someone is uh you know tickling their muscles or whatever so i was wondering if if that could have any possible roots in uh i guess it sort of be a mild really mild form of abuse but it seems like most of the times when people are tickling someone else they they always say stop before the person stops so i, I was wondering if that has any legitimacy in, in right. uh, being being a mild form of abuse that's very interesting. I was actually just thinking about this yesterday. No, two days ago, coincidentally enough. Um, uh, my daughter, of course, is is uh, almost 13 months old, and um, she's uh, now of the age where she's beginning to really enjoy what, I don't know, what I call roughhousing, uh, but other people may have uh, different different terms for it, um, which is, you know, basically rolling around and... Uh, uh, um, uh, being sort of held up in the air, uh, lifted up suddenly, and and then you know I'll sort of cup her and cuddle her, kiss her, and then we'll roll around, and she she comes back, and then I'll sort of she'll jump on my chest, and I'll sort of flip her over, uh, and then place her sort of gently on the ground. So she's really enjoying that sort of carnival ride of roughhousing, and a little bit of the roughhousing is um, is tickling. And yeah. uh, I said to uh, I said to Christina just the other day that um, the one thing that I remember from being a kid was that generally roughhousing would continue until somebody got hurt. Like, you know that phrase, it always ends in tears. Um, And that's something that I remember very distinctly as a kid, that, you know, you you went into roughhousing kind of knowing that it was going to be a lot of fun, but, you know, it's like you're you're riding on the roller coaster until it throws you against a wall and you (laughs) bruise or hurt yourself because that's what always seemed to happen. And I can feel that um, impulse to escalate within me and uh, I'm very, very careful and very conscious to, even though my daughter is very enthusiastic about this uh, interaction uh, and is, has a great deal of fun, to, to not escalate, to make sure that I keep it at a very gentle and even and slow keel. And that if I tickle her uh, and she laughs, uh, there is a temptation. And you say, well, if I tickle her more, she's going to laugh more. But I think we've, always, we've all experienced that where where tickling uh, is is fun and then becomes not fun, right? Even though you can't stop laughing. So I, you know, very consciously said to myself, like, I will not tickle her for more than one or two seconds uh, because I do not want it to uh, overwhelm her, right? Because, uh, and so, and, and when I say roughhousing, just so you understand, right? I mean, I'm sure you know, but it's uh, it's all very gentle and it's all very safe and she's never hurt herself and it's all uh, it's all very careful and very controlled and so on. But I, I really was thinking about that, about how it does tend to escalate. Um, I think that tickling is, um, uh, it can be fun if it's in very, very short bursts. But I certainly know, and rem- remember this as a kid, that uh, it was definitely a form of dominant, dominance behavior among children, right? So uh, someone could just jump on you and start tickling you and wouldn't get off. And that, of course, is very invasive and it's very horrible. Because you're not having fun, but you're involuntarily laughing. Uh, and it is very invasive uh, because it, it is somebody else taking over your nervous system. So uh, I agree with you that I think tickling is something that can be a lot of fun, but needs to be very, very short uh, and not uh, ever to the point where the person feels overwhelmed or, or intruded upon, but it's sort of a very, very short burst of, of something that's stimulating and, and giggly. So does that, uh, does that make any sense to you? Yeah, sort of, because uh, 
it's like you said that they're involuntarily laughing, so it almost gives off the impression that they're enjoying that while they're saying stop while they're. <laughs> I mean, it's it's hard to. Yeah, it's hard to know. And I think that there is a feeling of aggression among certain people that, uh, you know, I'm just going to keep tickling because it's it's fun for the other person, even if the other person is saying no. And uh, I, I have a vague memory of uh, someone in boarding school being tickled until they peed themselves. And, uh, of course, that is completely abusive, right? Um, even though the kid was saying stops. And that, I think, was much more of an extreme example. But I think that it can be, to me, to me, tickling crosses the line into something that is negative. The moment that the person cannot get away from the tickler, that to me is not good. Uh, like, so if I tickle Isabella, she can always twist away. Like I don't sort of, you know, uh, sit on her and tickle her or whatever. Obviously she's too small for that. And I wouldn't do that no matter how small or large she was. But to me, tickling is okay as long as the person can you know, put their arms down or can roll away or can just move away from that which is overstimulating. Because I certainly remember, you know, the, the old position where you sit on a kid's chest and you, you put your, your knees on their arms and then you tickle their armpits or their sides. Um, oh, God. That right, that's horrible because, because you, can't, you can't control it. Tickling is such an overwhelming experience when you're a kid that you need to have the ability to manage that stimuli. And if you are in, in any way controlled, physically controlled during the tickle or, or physically restrained during the tickle, then to me that's just not good in any way, shape, or form because um, you don't have the choice anymore. Yeah, and I've also noticed that um, a lot of times the people, you know, how people say they can't tickle themselves. So it it kind of shows that the, the fear or the, um, the response to it is not just from the physical feeling. It's from the... Uh, the feeling of being dominated. So I, I think that's that's definitely a, something most people have maybe not thought of and in terms of uh, things things to do with your children that um, are fun but not harmful. Yeah, I mean, and, and it really is around the the restraint, the minimal amount of tickling, and always with the child having the ability to to control the stimuli. And always, the moment somebody says stop, this is true for anything. You just stop. I mean, the safe yeah. word for everyone is stop, right? And uh, I think that there are some people, I certainly remember these kids uh, prowled around when I was a kid. Uh, they just would, you know, jump and tickle and stop, wouldn't matter. And that to me was just another form of uh, control and, and bullying. And I thought it was a, a nasty thing to do even at the time. So I think you're right. And I think it's an excellent point to bring up. All right. Well, uh, that, I think that's it. I mean... <laughs> I would have thought I would have had a lot of questions calling to the show, but surprisingly, this is this is the first one, seemingly seemingly a minor topic that I thought of. But I'm sure I'll call again at some point. No, and I, I don't think it's a minor topic. I mean, I think that we've all experienced the tickling as a kid, and I think it is something that uh, people should be uh, aware of. Um, what a what a challenge it can be. So I, I really appreciate you bringing it up. I think it was a great uh, a great topic. Yeah, well, thanks for your time so much, and. Uh, just keep doing what you're doing. I mean, you, your videos are so valuable for showing people in my family just the empirical arguments behind just everything, everything that you talk about. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I certainly, the, the plan is to keep going. Uh, I'm not doing this in order to get into waitering. So uh, it definitely is the plan to keep going. So thank you so much. I appreciate that. Okay. Thanks, Doc. Right. Bye. I think we have a few other people who are keen to go. I, I think I just heard one. Uh, yes. Can you hear me? I sure can. Okay. Hi, Steph. I'm Brian. 
Uh, I was reading uh, Real Time Relationships last night and went to bed and had a nightmare. But my family was the first one in a while. So I was wondering if you were interested in uh, doing another uh, dream interpretation. Absolutely. I'm, I'm all ears. Okay. Uh, so this is a dream where uh, I'm in a car with my parents. And uh, we're driving through Chicago, uh, seeing kind of the skyscrapers around me. Uh, so my dad is uh, telling me certain things uh, while he's driving. Uh, in my dream, I don't really know what he's saying, although uh, I know that some of the things that he's saying is irritating to me. Um, and I feel these kind of uh, twitches, like in my mind. Uh, just irritations at some of the things that he says that I think are kind of irrational. Um, he notices that I'm not totally listening to him. Uh, he begins to get upset. My mom is besides him, him and uh, she is getting uh, quite upset. And she says something um, that she says, uh, wait, what is she says you have, she, she says something kind of absurd. Um, Brian, you have to, fulfill all of your dad's desires um and uh this is all kind of making me kind of numb and uh i'm just watching looking out the sides of the uh the side windows of my car of the car i'm in looking at the uh, skyscrapers uh and then i look to the front of the window to the front windshield and then suddenly uh it looks to me as though we're uh we're just driving on air, and below us is Lake Michigan. And I'm for a few moments, I'm just kind of stunned. Um, I look at my parents. My parents. My dad's just continuing to talk. Both my parents look like nothing's going on. And then, um, as I begin to like kind of squint my eyes a little bit, uh, I'm seeing the. Uh, I begin to see that I'm actually on a road. Uh, that we're actually on a road, but it's almost like being in a fog where you only see the front of the road and everything else is not the fog, but the water of the lake. And so I'm thinking to myself at this time, um, maybe I'm not looking at things properly. Um, maybe I'm just, maybe my vision's a little blurred. Uh, and then suddenly um, this foggy road just starts to become uh it starts to, I suddenly see that it's just going directly into the water. And then at that moment, my parents also realize that um, we're headed straight to the water. And my dad tries to hit the brakes. Uh, he does not do it in time. We crash into the water. My instant reaction was, uh, I should have known this was happening. Uh, I should have known, like, there was water. And then as this happens, and before I could even think about action... Um, the water begins to come into the car, takes over my, both my parents, then it takes over my, uh, my throat, my ears, my nose, and my instantaneous reaction is to try to open the car up and get the seatbelt off of me. But as I'm doing that, uh, it just, like, I, I, I realize it's going to be a struggle to do that. And then my instantaneous processing is, can I save myself? Then I ask myself, can I save my family? And then I just... I'm like, this must be a dream. And then instantaneously I woke up. Right. Okay. I just missed a bit. Um, you should have known this was happening. So the water comes in and there was something that was a struggle. It was getting your seatbelt off. Is that right? 
Yeah, it it was it was just more like when I I I mean like I instantaneously know I got to get my seatbelt off, and uh, the water is the water, and then the um, because the water is coming in, I got to open the door. But then just because of the resistance of the water, while I'm while it's all coming up, makes it more difficult than I would anticipate. And right. I really can't explain why I had the the feeling like I should have known this was happening. I I it's just like suddenly it's it's almost like a reaction of oh oh well, yeah but then like i can't rationalize what that was oh yeah i think i, I understand i think i understand that but uh okay uh all right so we'll just talk about your dream family right uh, just 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 talk i just want to try just just tr- just try talking about the dream itself if that makes any sense okay okay so um your dad is is talking and your mom is there and your dad is saying irritating and irrational things and your mom notices and your dad notices that you're upset and then you, your mom says you have to fulfill all of your dad's desires. In other words, pretend that what he's saying is enjoyable and interesting to you and don't have a negative response to his his uh, irrational statements. Is that That's fair to say, right? Yeah, I think I can interpret that what my mom says pretty a little bit more, a little bit better. Um so my mom is a is a schizophrenic, oh, um, and, and yeah, and I'm uh, so sorry, my so God, how terrifying! I, yeah, so um, she, I think in our, our family situation, I think she, and I don't know if this is rational or not, but this is just the way it is. I think she's achieved most of her stability um, in her life by uh, looking by thinking of. Perceiving my dad as kind of a moral moral superiority, and um, I mean recently, I mean I've been re- listening to a lot of your podcasts like since around Christmas time and reading. I read Universal Preferred Behavior during that time, and uh, um, I started to have kind of a conversation with my dad more about like my relationship with him, and um, and what I used to think as a kid in terms of when he would say things and I wouldn't, I would sort of act kind of passive aggressively. I kind of talked to him about what was going through my mind. And while I was having that conversation, I was also in a car with both my parents. And then I noticed my dad was getting irritated. Um, but I don't know if our conversation really progressed that well, but I do remember from that conversation, my mom really started to get distressed. Um, and then she started to, she said the exact same thing to me. You have to fulfill all your desires. So her saying that had it actually happened in real life. Yeah, no, I got um, that it wasn't a metaphor. It, yeah. So it was just, she was saying it again. And um, that has really bothered me, especially knowing that if I can, that if, if I do have structural, rational disagreements with my dad and she notices that he's not in control that like her own world can come crumbling down now sorry when you um, say that your looks, your mom is a schizophrenic do you mean that she's like a diagnosed and on medication yes, schizophrenic yes. yes medications yeah um, and um is uh given that um uh, this obviously is a difficult thing for a child to experience um what was your family's plan for uh, ensuring or at least trying to um, give you uh, the mental health and, and support? Uh, like, did they did they get you into therapy? Did they spend a lot of time explaining to you uh, about your mom's uh, mental illness and so on? 
No, not, and I'm somewhat bitter about that. Um, she, I knew that she had problems when, ever since I was a kid. I knew that she didn't think of things properly. She would, she would cry over absurd things. She would make absurd statements. And um, I mean, only until, and this might sound like really absurd. I'm actually a, a medical student right now um, in Milwaukee. And I, uh, I, I only noticed I, when I started to learn about schizophrenia itself, that's actually, while I was in medical school, that was actually the only time I really, really got an, a grasp of what she actually had. And I, that was only after that, that I actually confronted my parents about, or my dad about what she had. I think people were telling me more in my family that she had some sort of a depression, mental illness, but didn't go beyond that. Sorry, but are you saying um, that you're, you're kind of, sorry, let me just make sure I understand. So you're saying that your, sure. uh, your father or nobody in your extended family explained to you about your mother's mental illness when you were younger? Yeah, not to, not to, not to the precision of saying it's schizophrenia, she hears voices and things like that. They said she has mental, I, I mean, I was under the impression she had mental illness, that she had some depression, um, but the precision of saying, like, she hears voices, she has paranoid ideations, that's stuff that I really didn't understand. Um, the only, one of the reasons I really recognized it was because I know that with her medications, she has a lot of, like, Parkinsonian-type symptoms where her where her eyes, or sorry, her uh, hands are kind of twitching, um, and then that's a that's a side effect of some uh, anti uh, schizophrenic medications. And then after I noticed, heard about that in lecture, and noticed that with my mom, then when I started to get the picture, and then I confronted my dad about it. But sorry, so they did explain that um, your mom had mental illness, that it's frightening, that it's nothing to do with you, that it's not your fault, that you're not bringing on this behavior, that... Yeah. Uh... Sorry, yes, they did. Yeah, yeah, definitely that. that. Okay, that's yeah. good, right? So, and did they, um, uh, did they regularly check in with you and ask you what your experience was like of having her as a mother, given that, of course, mental illness is very difficult for children, right? Um... You're asking if they 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 kind of looked at my perspective of it, or well, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't, huh? I don't know if anyone really asks me, or anyone really asks me as much as people kind of tell me, or my dad used to kind of tell me, like you know, this is your mom, uh, you have to you have to deal with her. You have to know that she's she's she can't think things through properly, and sometimes she's gonna act obnoxious. Uh, right. So, are you, you saying that you don't? Her. Sorry to interrupt, but are you saying that you don't recall people uh, asking you about your experience uh, as a child of of your family? Yeah, I don't think people really asked me about it, uh, what my perceptions was as much as, like my dad kind of said. I, I guess I would, I would. But, I'm sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I, I guess I would sometimes confront my dad about my feelings. As, I don't know if he necessarily would come up to me, um, but then he would. But yeah, he would say. I mean, the things I said that like, this is your mom. This is what she's going through. Um, this is what I mean. You have to be able to deal with it. You can't expect her to rationally understand everything that you tell her. Or that anybody else tells her. Right. 
And the question that I'm asking you, is it a surprising question? It doesn't sound like you've thought of it before. I could be wrong. What, that the uh, that if anybody asked me, you mean, yeah. how I feel? Yeah, if anyone asked you how you feel. Um, I think it's been becoming more of a surprise now that I'm, I mean, like going through this kind of, kind of your podcasts and going through some of your books, um, it's coming clear to me that this is something that I should have, people should be asking me when I was young. Um, but I getting up, it did seem natural. Oh yeah, I know. I understand that. And I, I only say that because of course, um, I ask people in my family all the time how, how things are going. And I certainly plan on asking Isabella when she can speak. Uh, although she's very strong-willed and she tells me exactly what she wants and what she likes and what she doesn't like. And most of the times I will accommodate her. In fact, I'll always accommodate her where it's, it's possible and safe. Um, but I, I mean, I plan on asking her, you know, what, what's your experience of the family? Is there something that we could be doing better? What do you like? What do you not like? Um, and I, I plan on doing that in particular because she's not here by choice, right? I'm, I'm here by choice. My wife's here, by, but she's not here by choice. So it's very important for me to, um, to understand her experience of the family and to make sure that uh, she's getting uh, as, as good uh, a, a set of family experiences as she can, right? As I've said before, yeah. um, a restaurant will do that. I was on the Best Buy website researching something today, and Best Buy bugged me to take a, a, a survey about how I enjoyed the Best Buy website. You know, like if, if Best Buy can do it to some anonymous person on the internet to ask for their feedback on their experience of a website, should it not also be the case that we as fam family members, and particularly as parents, ask our children what their experience of the family is and what they would like and what they would not like and what they prefer and what they don't prefer? And to not do that, to me, uh, is, is, not, is not good parenting. Uh, it doesn't mean that everybody who doesn't do it is a bad parent, but it's not good parenting to me uh, to, to not ask your children for feedback. Because what happens then is that your children's compliance becomes sort of taken for granted. And what happens is then your children become the variable and everything else becomes the constant, right? So your mother's craziness was a constant and you were the variable. You had to adjust to it and your preferences could not be accommodated because you had to adjust to your mom, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that, that, that kind of does. Um, it, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that's really been like kind of a theme. I, I, when I look at it, it's kind of a theme growing up. It's having to adjust to um, some of the issues that other people have, um, most notably my mom. And, um, even as a medical student, like trying to interpret, like, I mean, we're supposed to be knowing more about psychiatry and, and the issues, but like, I, I can tell you it's still like, I mean, what I know about psychiatry or what I know about schizophrenia is still like so vague. And so, and there's just like a lot of, it's not a very, it's not a disease that's really objectively understood as with a lot of psychiatric illnesses. Right. You um, may want to listen to, um, I think it was the Greg Siegel interview I did recently. If you haven't listened to that or watched it, he talks about yeah, um, yeah he talks about uh, schizophrenia actually is responding to talk therapy, which I'd never heard of, and I think because you might want to research more about that. Okay, do you mind if we take a swing at the dream? I have a, a basic framework, and and you yes. tell me if it makes any sense. Okay. All right. So just okay. you know, my normal caveats. I'm going to use uh, terms around self knowledge. This is just my uh, amateur opinion. Uh, take it for what it's worth. It's just some guy on the internet. But I'll tell you what I what I think it's about, and then you can tell me if it makes any sense. Okay. Now, in dreams, 
I believe that the air represents dissociation, the earth represents reality, and the sea represents the unconscious, right? Because we stand on the ground, and, uh, but, but we can't live in the clouds, um, and we can't live underwater. And so to me, when you're standing on the ground in a dream, it means you're in reality. You see things for what they are. When you are up in the clouds, it means that you're dissociated, uh, which means, you know, you're distracted, you're having out of, you, you don't feel you're in your body, you don't have any emotions really or strong emotions, and you're just kind of living in your own head. And when you're underwater, um, you're acting out. There's an unconscious, you're in the grip of the unconscious. That's my uh, amateur nonsense framework, but I found it to be very, very helpful. Um, uh, my, okay. my own dreams around water, uh, particularly um, powerful water. Uh, like tsunamis and so they're all involved the unconscious so that's that's what i developed and and maybe it's of use to this now you're driving through chicago so you're on the ground and the reality is that your dad is saying irritating stuff and you're irritated and um, nobody takes any interest in your feelings they just tell you to conform to the preferences of those around you right yeah that's what was going on right and that's why i asked if anybody as a kid and I knew the answer, right? But I just wanted to confirm. But that's why I asked when you were a kid if people asked you what your preferences were and what you liked and what you didn't, right? Yeah, it's not not, not for the most part, no. Now, um, you're kind of swissing me here a little, right? <laughs> you're giving me the neutral language of fog because you're saying kind of, sort of, right? Um... And I, I, I want to be fair. Like, me. I'm not I saying you're right I'm, or wrong. I just, I want to understand. Like, people either did or they didn't, right? Yeah. I, I think people don't ask me. I think sometimes I go out of my way to make my, my own interests clear. And then I might get, some people, people might get a little bit of insight of what I want. But generally speaking, I don't think, like, my parents necessarily, like, would be pretty direct in looking at what my interests were as much as they would. But I, if, if I ever did kind of, speak up a little bit, which I didn't always do, um, then, uh, then they would, they would have a, they would know a little bit about what I wanted. Well, you, your dream parents I mean certainly don't, uh, your, your dream parents certainly don't do that, right? No, they don't. Not in the dream. Right. So, uh, you're continuing to be unhappy, right? And your dad just continues to talk like nothing happened, right? No, he, 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 I guess maybe I didn't make it clear. He uh, he did hear, um, he did notice that I was getting irritated, and then he got a little bit more irritated. Right, but uh, what I've got here is a note, and maybe I got it down wrong, is that uh, um, you, you look out the side, and you see cars. You look to the front of the window, and you're driving in the air above Michigan, right? And your dad just, just continued yeah. to talk, right? Yeah. Sorry, you're saying, yeah, like, that's not what happened to Please correct me if I got it wrong. No, 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 that was right. We're we're going. He he's talking, um, and I'm just looking out the window, the side windows, and then I suddenly look to the front window, and then we're just dri driving over Lake Michigan in midair. Right. So that's obviously physically impossible, right? Uh, it's right. it's an indication that something is 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 quite awry, and you're the yes. only one who notices it, right? Yes. And that's that's important, right? That you're the only one who notices it and you don't say anything. Yeah, I, I just yeah, my instantaneous reaction when I noticed it is that I must be I must be seeing 
something weird. I must be. I I just I just it was like an instantaneous sight, and then it's like, whoa, what? And I'm like, I need to twitch. It's like almost like I need to like squint my eyes to look at what's really going on. Just that that was sort of I guess my reaction. Right, but it's a, the typical thing to do when if you and I were driving in a car and uh, I I saw something weird, I, the first thing I would do is turn to you and say, I see X. Do you see it? Or do you see that? What do you see when you were looking at that or whatever, right? We would we would verify, right? Yeah. Right, like at the end of A Beautiful Mind, someone comes up to Nash and starts talking to him and he turns to the person next to him and says, do you see this person? Because, right, he's he's crazy, right? <laughs> or at least he's, he hallucinates. Right. So he, the first thing he does is verify and ask if somebody else can, can see that person, right? Yeah. But you so don't do that in the dream. Situation, yeah. yeah, I don't do that, and nobody else seems to notice um, that we're floating in there. And your dad is just continuing so I guess talk, right? Yeah. And that's, it's important that you don't say anything. Because at the end of the dream, you said, I should have known this was happening. It was almost, when I, when I say, like, I should have known this was happening, it was almost like, that we were driving into the water. No, like, no, we I, I got were that. I got the that. water. But okay. But you don't. As far as I understand it, you don't say anything throughout the whole dream, right? Yeah, I, mean, I don't think I. Huh. Yeah, I don't think I said a word in the dream. That's I think I was just right? thinking to myself. Right. So you're with so your what? family and you're not talking. Yeah, I'm not talking in this dream. Right. And and you end up thoughts. in a disaster, right? Yeah. And you kind of end up in a disaster where it's like you were them, right? Like, I can, I can save myself. I don't think I can save them. It's all an emergency and a disaster, right? Yeah. That was how it ended, like, with that kind of thinking. Right. And to me, dissociation results in disaster. That's my opinion. Dissociation... Uh, being not in connection with yourself, not in connection with your feelings, not self-expressed, right? Wherever we can't speak honestly, and we are in a situation where we regularly or perpetually cannot speak honestly, we end up dissociated from ourselves. Because all we do is manage ourselves and have conversations with ourselves and shut ourselves up and say we can't say this and we should say that and this person's going to get upset if we say this. We have no particular relationship with ourselves. No honest, spontaneous, authentic, open, communicative experience of herself. All we do is we're managing other people by controlling and suppressing our, our own honesty and self-expression, right? Yeah. Um, and so I don't believe that that is a relationship. I don't believe that if you are in your dream car... And you're irritated, and then you're frightened, and then you're startled, and then you're annoyed, and then you're, and all of this is occurring from you for you, and you don't open your mouth and speak once. That to me is not having a relationship, clearly, right? Yeah, I think that you know. All right, so, well, yeah, and I think the issue, I guess, the issue that kind of underlies this is that. Yeah, when I talk, when I try to talk back um, to things that I don't like, even in a rational manner, you know, the 
the argument, the, the conversation escalates in terms of uh, hostility. I understand. I understand. And mm, you can do whatever you want, of course, in your life. I will tell you, though, from my perspective, I will not surrender honesty to anybody's prejudice. I will not surrender my commitment to honesty to other people's prejudices or upsets. And that, that to me is just a matter of my integrity and my commitment to, to virtue and to, to values. And I'm, you know, I'm not saying it's completely immoral. or anything. If you don't, I'm just, what I'm saying is that I don't surrender my commitment to honesty because other people get annoyed or upset. That to me is letting the worst behavior overpower the better behavior. And the other thing that's yeah, true... I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, um, like the thing that the thing that uh, that that's something that I'm trying to wrestle with. I, I recognize that it's something that I need to do, but like the thing I guess I'm starting to wrestle with now is like I mentioned before with my mom. Uh, if if like I feel like if I begin to start to 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 answer to respond honestly and with a, gr a great deal of rationality to some of the arguments that I might have with my dad, I think my mom will, I, because she sees the, you know, the moral superiority, like, concept that she has of my dad, once she sees that kind of crumble, I think that will, can crumble her mind. Um, right, so, so, let, let, so let me just make sure I understand. So, so the, the downside or the risk factor is that if you're honest, your dad's moral weaknesses may be exposed, uh, and and as a result, your mother's faith in your father will take a hit, which could cause her to her mind to to go haywire or something, right? Yeah, that that that, that sounds about right. All right, that, that's a fear I have. And let's say that happens. What then? I don't know. Let go. Like I mean, my whole family structure could come crumbling down. Let's say that happens. What then? I think I'd feel, I think I would feel a bit of guilt. I'm sure you'd feel more than a bit, right? I mean, I... Yeah. I, yeah, I'd feel quite a bit of guilt. And I know people will, like my sister and whatnot would, and maybe some distant relatives will make me feel, uh, make it clear to me that... Um, I'm responsible for this. Um, I don't know how my dad would take it. I think sometimes my dad is a pretty rational person, and I think sometimes he's extremely irrational. Right. Uh, I, yeah, it's just a, I guess that's something I, I, I haven't thought too much about in terms of like, like how bad it can get. Oh, I, I trust me, you've thought about it. You have thought about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have had this dream. And otherwise, you wouldn't be avoiding honesty with your family in this way. You have thought about it. I guarantee you've thought about it for years. At some level. You have to have. I if might never, have, like, um, You understand, I, if you'd never thought about the downside of being honest with your family, you would already have been honest with your family, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I I think, like, I mean, and, and, like, just thinking about myself and while reading some of your books, I think what could have possibly happened is I could have had these kind of, I could have thought about it when I was 
quite young and powerless and more powerless than I am now. And uh, and now that I'm older, I guess I, I might not have been consciously thinking about it maybe since I've been. Right. No, I understand. A little... I'm going to give you my advice. Right. And and okay. I mean, I assume that's what you called in for. Right. I mean, I certainly appreciate you, you, yeah. you sharing this. And it's look, I mean, first of all, I want to say I completely feel for your situation and I completely understand that there are no easy answers to this. Right. I mean, I, I really get right. that there are no easy answers um, and no one, of course, can tell you what to do. What I can do is I can tell you what I would do and I can tell you why I would do it and the principles that I would refer to when I was doing it. And, and then you can tell me if it makes any sense or it's something that is completely insane for you to do and, you know, just hang up or whatever, right? Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds okay. All right. I'm a big one for implicit, and this is very important, not just for you, Brian, but, but for, for everyone in every situation. I'm a big one for, I don't like implicit rules. I do not like at all, implicit rules. I like rules, if there are going to be rules, I like rules to be right out there on the table so that I know what I'm supposed to navigate by and what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do. I like rules to be very explicit. I don't like to, them, them to be implicit because then they become manipulative and fear-based and bullying, right? So what I would do is okay. I would sit down with everyone in your family except your mom, and I would say something like this, and I'm going to paraphrase, and I'm probably going to get a bunch of stuff wrong, but I, this is the, the approach that I would take. I'd sit down and say, okay, I don't feel that I can be who I am and honest and self-expressed in this family as it stands, right? And I feel that there are, I feel, or I believe, or I experience that there are lots of hidden rules in this family, and I would like to have those rules brought to the surface so that I know what I'm dealing with in terms of what I'm allowed or not allowed to do or say in this, in this relationship, right? So there's, there's a rule called don't upset mom, right? So uh, I, I need to sort of understand what that means. Does that mean that we can't do anything that would ever upset mom? Uh, should mom never, ever be upset? In what ways are we allowed to? Like if I say something, if I'm genuinely thinking and feeling something, and if saying it might upset mom, am I allowed or not allowed to say it? And, and then go around, like, what about you, sister? If I'm feeling or thinking something that might upset you if I say it, am I allowed to say it or not say it? Like, what are the rules here, right? What are the rules of this family? What are the rules of this relationship? I think that's so important, right? Because that's all I'm doing with anarchism in the state is saying, okay, so if I don't give you money, you take a gun to my head and kidnap me. That's the rule, right? And I'm not going to deal with this implicit stuff like there's a social contract and you love it or leave it. And like, that's all bullshit. What I want are the rules to float up to the surface so that I can navigate by some black and white things. I'm not just going to pound around in my boat through the fog, hoping not to hit a rock because that's just paralyzing. I need the rules to be clear. I want sonar. I want depth finders. I want magnetic compasses. I want GPS. I want satellites. I want the rules to be clear in this family. And I would just go through all of the inhibitions and like, I feel like if I say, if I say things critical of the family, am I allowed to say things critical of the family, right? I want, I want these rules to be explicit. Am I allowed to have feelings or thoughts that cause other people upset? Other people are allowed to have feelings or thoughts that cause me upset, right? Um, uh, are we to ask each other how we're doing? 
And and are we like, is that something that we're going to do as a family or we're not going to do as a family? Because it doesn't happen to me. And nobody sits and asks me how I'm doing. Nobody proactively asks me what my life's like or how I'm doing. So is that something that we don't do or is that something that we're going to start doing? What are the rules? What are the rules? Don't let there be implicit rules in your relationship. Bring the rules up to the surface. Bring the rules up to reality. Bring the rules into the light so that we can actually see what we're working with. And that would be my approach to this because I would not want to be in a situation where I felt inhibited from speaking because somebody might get upset. But if that is the rule, right, if people are going to say, oh, yes, we're not going to ask each other how we're doing and you're not allowed to say anything that might be upsetting to other people and this and that and the other, then at least it's on the table and you can make a decision about whether you want that kind of relationship I don't think that would be a relationship, but whether you want to be part of that system or not. But I think the rules really have to be up front. And that's what I did um, with my own relationships was I'd say, okay, so so we're not going to do this, but we are going to do this. Wait, is this allowed or is this not allowed? What is the constitution of us? What is the legality of us? What are the rules of we? I think that's really, really, really important because if the rules are good and fair and just and right and empathetic and flexible and and intimate and open and honest, then people should have no problem explicating those rules front and center with the searchlight on broadcast for all the world to see. You can put them on the web as your family rules if the rules are fair and just. If the rules are exploitive and one-sided and negative and destructive and so on, then people will not want to make them clear. They will not want to turn the light on to have these hidden rules seen because these rules will be uh, destructive and exploitive and so on. So I think turning the light on, grabbing a pen, a big sheet of paper and say, what is the constitution of us, right? What is the legality of this family? Yeah. That's really important. And I would, I would really work on, on trying to explicate that so that you're not stuck in the back of your dream car, not able to say anything until you hit the water. I think I can work to that. At the same time, I, I, I fear. Like, I, I think I'm, I'm someone who can... I, I think in a rational setting that these were... That it's possible that these rules can be set up. I fear that in moments of irrationality or anger, like other people in my family might break those rules. And then... Yeah, no, I understand that. And sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I understand that because also we need to have rules for dispute resolution. Because the reason we have rules is nobody's perfect, right? We don't need to write down a law book of gravity because gravity is perfect. It always works without uh, error, right? But... But people make mistakes, right? So you write down all the rules, and then you're going to say, okay, what's going to happen if we, when we break these rules? Because we're going to, right? So, yeah. and the reason that we do this, right? Like I, I had a relationship many, many years ago with a woman who was a bit of a yeller. And, uh, you know, I, I would say to her, listen, uh, I, we, we can't yell at each other. Like, I, I don't want you raising your voice at me. That's not, not productive, right? And I, I could not get her to, to, um, to agree to that as a rule, right? And the reason that you need to have these rules so that if somebody does something to break the rules, you can say, no, no, wait, we have these rules that we've agreed to, so you can't do that, right? So if a rule is like no raising your voice, no yelling at each other, right? 
if somebody starts to yell, then you say, no, uh, that's not, not part of the rule set, right? And the person then has to obey the rule set. I mean, this is basic civilized uh, behavior in any relationship, whether it's with your grocer or with your spouse or your parents or your children or whatever. You just you have to have these rules and you have to have ways of um, resolving these disputes, right? So if we have a dispute, we have to return to the rules. Otherwise, it just devolves into personal bullying where generally the most primitive and destructive personalities end up ruling the system, right? It's devolution. Without rules, we just have devolution. Without rules that are abstract, that are referable to, that help resolve disputes in relationships, we just end up with the most manipulative and negative and destructive running everything. And the rules are specifically designed in opposition to that. And so I would, uh, I would really, um, you know, ha with the rules comes the dispute resolution. And the rules also have to be agreed to, right? So if everyone agrees to the rules, then it's like, okay, so if we do anything in opposition to those rules, the first thing we're going to do is call each other on it, and that behavior is then going to stop, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's setting up those rules is sounds like quite a challenge. Um, but you negotiate sure them, and they're actually not that sorry to interrupt again, they're not that complicated, right? It's not like you have to have a rule for every situation. But you first of all start with your honesty about the restrictions that you feel in the relationship. Like, I don't feel like I can do this, and I don't feel like I can say that, and I don't feel this and that and the other. So, you start with the stuff that you feel restricted on and say, Are these rules, or am I just incorrect in my understanding, right? And if people say, no, you're incorrect, you're perfectly free to say something, then act like that's true. So I'm perfectly free, I'm perfectly free to say stuff even if it bothers other people. Is that, and then, okay, then keep going. And then if somebody says, well, that bothers me, it's like, okay, yeah, but we're, it's okay for me to do that. We already agreed to that, right? Because otherwise you're in yeah. the worst kind of anarchy, so to speak, right? Uh, the negative kind where it's like the, the, the stereotype of, of no anarchy, of, of anarchy, right? Which yeah, yeah. Is statism. I agree with you. It is a difficult thing to have that conversation, and you don't have to do it. You you can stay silent in the back of the car until you hit the water, so to speak. Um, yeah. But what I'm telling you, what I'm telling you is that in my uh, nonsense opinion, if you don't do this, your relationship with your family will not go well at all. Yeah, it it seems like yeah, it'll the hitting the water thing is like a. Like the direction I'm headed in now without... Well, that's what... That's, the dream says very clearly, this is what's going to happen if you don't speak up, Brian. If you don't speak up, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, so this is a... I guess it's kind of setting up these rules and trying to rid myself of them of implicit rules and rid myself of living in kind of, or acting in a dissociative fashion is kind of the, the starting point. I mean, I guess the first thing is to stop acting and stop, stop dissociating myself from the situation. And then the second rule is to look at, I guess the second thing is to look at what, what implicit rules I've developed, get rid of those, and then talk honestly with kind of the rash, the rational members of my, or the people I expect to be rational in my family, and uh, and uh, you know work set up some ground rules so that we can talk honestly and be able to uh, do the best 
thing for my mom as well. Right, right. I mean, it is, it is a strange thing to think about that. I I, I buy a, a nine dollar piece of software. I have to read five pages of an end user license agreement in order to install it, so that I know what's allowable and what's not allowable and what's permissible and what's not and blah, 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 right? So I have rules with a $9 piece of software that I have to adhere to. Now, those are more legal rules, and I'm not talking about legal rules. Somebody just asked, well, isn't this the opposite of anarchism to have rules? No, of course not. It is the embodiment of anarchism to have rules. It is the embodiment of statism to have no rules. There are no rules in statism. There is only force and edict. Um, So no, negotiated um, rules, negotiated standards within relationship is the essence of anarchism. This is just being a DRO within your own family. So if, if I have to have yeah. standards of behavior for a $9 piece of software, why can't I have standards of behavior with the relationships that are supposed to be the most deep and, and warm and long-lasting and intimate relationships that I have, which is my family? I think that rules are absolutely essential. Um, uh, certainly, uh, And why am I supposed to have rules for my own behavior? i.e. not rules, but certainly guidelines that I try to live by, like, you know, be honest and, and act with courage and, and try to treat people with, you know, the old dignity and respect and all that. And why would I have those standards for myself, but not for other people? Why would I have philosophy and ideals uh, and standards of behavior for myself, but not for anybody else? That wouldn't make any sense. That's a violation of UPB for them only to be applicable to me, but not to others, right? That's to say, yeah. I've come up with a physics theory that only applies to me and not to other people. It doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. I think this <laughs> I'm is... sorry to have dumped this on you. Sound about as enthusiastic as if I just left a dead horse in your bed. No, um, no, so... no, no. It, 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 this was very helpful. It, it, I, I just have to. I mean, this is something that I, I, I gotta like. I gotta take this. I'm, I'm just processing this in terms of my family situation, and how people react. I, I think, like, yeah. I mean, the. <laughs> The, the right thing to do is not always the easy thing to do. It's, I guess that might be my oh. lack of, uh, of... I know. And listen, uh, my, my strong advice, don't do this without a therapist, right? You, you're in school, right? So you can get um, you can get free or heavily subsidized therapy just by being in school. I mean, I, I, would, not, uh, I would not do this without someone to, to help you process it, right? Yeah, that, that is good advice. I just was talking to a friend about a therapist. Right, like philosophy is a map and a therapist is a driver, right? So I'm sort of giving you a vague map uh, or maybe even a not-so-vague map, but to actually get there, you need not a philosopher but, but a therapist, and that, that would be my, my strong uh, strong advice uh, to not, not attempt it without a therapist. That sounds like a good idea. I think I'll... Uh, yeah, that, that, that actually that helps a lot, yeah. All right. Yeah, I think that's what I need to all right. Thank you, Steph. I Thanks. Really Listen, keep, keep me posted if you can. And um, uh, if you, uh, you know, use the message board as a resource if, if you're having trouble. Um, it's uh, lots, lots of really smart people who are very, very happy to help. So uh, thank you so much for bringing this up. And I just wanted to really, really express my condolences and sympathies um, growing up with this kind of uh, uh, mental illness in the family is a very, very difficult thing. And unless it's very openly and explicitly dealt with, which it doesn't sound like it was overly much in your family, uh, it, it produces significant distortions in relations. So I, I really applaud you for having the courage to start to bring this stuff up with your family. And uh, I just, again, my deepest, deepest sympathies for uh, the challenges that this kind of environment uh, had for you as a kid. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. I will. Yeah. I, I have. I haven't been really posting on the boards, but that's something I'm looking at them, and it's something I 
uh, I'm definitely telling myself I want to get more involved in. So, or not telling myself, but I know that I ordering yourself like the Gestapo. Absolutely. Well, all right. So thanks very much. Posted. We do have time for a split second, tiny more question. I know some people have been hanging on for quite a while, and I'm sorry, but I really do appreciate your patience. So um, if you wanted to speak up, we'd certainly have a little bit more time. Going once. Going. Hey, Steph. Hello. Uh, I'll go ahead and jump in. Um, I've been uh, keeping track of something that I've tried to comment after the, uh, after the Seagull interview that I'll go ahead and post right now. Please. There is a, uh, a psychotherapist named uh, Danny Mackler out of New York who has a documentary on treating schizophrenia with talk therapy. Oh, yeah. You, you posted that uh, in the chat, right? Yeah. Um, he has that along with a, uh, a critique of Alice Miller that you might enjoy. Oh, very much so. Yeah, thanks. Um, uh, I will. Uh, yeah, just you, you, can you give the, the title of the post so people can search for it? Uh, yeah, I think it's I actually just posted the link in the chat, but it is uh, I think it's called I'd love to see Steph interview this guy. <laughs> OK, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, I hope that's helpful. I don't have much else to comment on. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, You're welcome. Yeah, this I think I've seen a video from this guy. He's um he's a therapist who practices in New York, I think. And uh, I yeah, I'm pretty happy to chat with him. But this is in general. If you think that there would be a um uh, a fun thing, uh, uh, somebody who would be interesting for me to chat with, um, uh, you know, please uh, please feel free to uh, uh, to let me know, and I will uh, get in touch with the person. I'm always uh, eager to find uh, interesting new people to chat with, and uh, so please uh, please do let me know. All right. Well, thank you uh, for your patience again for the uh, paucity of 20, I guess, of, of second decade of the 21st century podcasts uh, on the Sunday. And thank you so much for, I guess, a pretty record number of people who've joined us today, which I really do uh, appreciate. And um, uh, have yourselves an absolutely fantastic, fantastic week. And uh, I did uh, a uh, I've got a couple of good podcasts uh, in the um, on deck, which I will uh, dribble out this week. And I hope that you will enjoy them. And uh, thanks again for all of your support and your continued interest in this philosophical conversation. And uh, I will talk to you soon.